I'm curious to know what unsettling topics do you tend to avoid wherever possible? Is it possibly the news we like to avoid so we can keep out extra anxiety? Or is it tragedy and death we try to avoid, never consuming any movies or books or other material that we know will have a bad ending? Happy endings only, anyone? Went through that phase for a while. You could also be like my friend who leaves the room as soon as anything scary begins to be talked about because she doesn't want to let that kind of fear into her life. She just ups and leaves. Um, so perhaps even for you this morning, our topic of regeneration and conversion could fall into this category of unsettling topics. As either a Christian or a non-Christian alike, you may begin to feel uneasy as we explore what the Bible teaches about being born again, repentance, and faith, because this theology has eternal consequences for you and for me. It has eternal consequences for all of the people who we care about in this world. It should further unsettle us to consider, what if we get these wrong? What if we confuse regeneration with conversion? We risk reducing following Jesus to a lifestyle choice, like whether to eat organic or not. What if we think regeneration is what God does after we repent and believe the gospel? We risk surrounding the call to salvation with emotional manipulation, and pressure? What if we reduce conversion to merely belief? We risk deceiving people into thinking that they are Christians when they are not. What if we never talk about repentance? That repentance that's not simply a one-time decision, but also a lifestyle, a lifetime of repentance. We risk bringing people into church membership who are not genuinely converted. We might hinder our, church, our witness as a church, or worse. So we can see that eternity is at stake. So we want to get these doctrines right, and we need to apply them well. So I'm so glad we're here this morning, and I hope that we can do that together. My prayer this morning for each of us is that the Lord would settle us, rooting us deep in his word, in the knowledge of God's work in salvation, that the Christian would rejoice in the assurance we have through this wonderful doctrine of grace, and that the non-Christian would respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. Would you all pray with me? Father in heaven, we give you praise this morning that you are a God of love and mercy, God of justice and wrath. We pray that this morning you would help each of us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you help our ears to hear, to understand, that you help our hearts not to be distracted, that you set a guard over my mouth, that I will not say any unprofitable thing, but only what's useful for building up these women according to their needs, that it might benefit all who hear. God, we pray that you would receive the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So if you're here for the first time, you are joining us in a series of talks on the systematic theology of salvation, just like Emily mentioned. Um, that's, you can also think about that as the order of salvation. So the previous two talks, um, one given by Erica and one given by Jennifer, did you already say this? Okay, they can be found online. So I strongly encourage you to look those up, to listen to them while you're doing the dishes or mopping your floor. Um, doing something. Just listen. They're so helpful. And um, these topics are greatly interrelated, and they also deeply enrich each other. So you would be benefited by listening to all of them. Um, and I would highly recommend. But for this morning, our main idea, you may want to write this down, goes at the top, is God regenerates and the converted respond. God regenerates and the converted respond. This main point serves also as our big overarching teaching outline, so hopefully that's nice and clear for us. We could restate this another way, though. Regeneration is wholly God's work, and conversion is the holy result. Regeneration is wholly God's work, and conversion is the holy result. 
So I love to start by defining terms because I'm guessing regeneration is not an everyday average vocab word for you any more than it is for me. But simply put, regeneration is our theological term that means born again. Wayne Grudem in Bible Doctrine also defines it as a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life in us. I think our UBC statement of faith is really helpful for grasping the whole concept of regeneration, and I have it typed on our handout for us so you can easily follow along as I read. Um, But if you want to look down at that, we believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again, that regeneration is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit who revives the dead in trespasses and sins spiritually and savingly enlightening their minds to understand the word of God and renewing their whole nature so that they voluntarily love and practice holiness. That is a work of God's, that it is a work of God's free and special grace and that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. So that's a great definition, but what a lot to unpack, right? So hopefully in our time together, we'll grasp this more thoroughly. But I'm curious, can anyone remember the day you were born? (laughs) Me neither. So just as we are passive in our physical birth, so we are in our spiritual birth. We did not choose to be physically alive or will ourselves into existence, and neither do we choose or will ourselves to be regenerated, to be born again. John 1.13 describes children of God as those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Human will does not bring this about. Regeneration is wholly and totally the work of God. God regenerates. But this begs the question, how does God work? So 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25 shows us how God brings this about. You have been born again through the living and abiding word of God, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. God makes the new birth happen to you through the word of God. If you need any more reason for why discipling relationships and women's ministry ought to be word-centered, Look no further. I hope this convinces you. The word awakens faith. As Romans 10:17 describes, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Something that has honestly surprised me in discipling relationships over the years has been the Lord drawing women to saving faith in him when I assumed and even they thought they were already Christians. So, through simply reading the Bible together and praying, God regenerated them through his word. Sometimes over the course of just a few weeks or a few months or even a few years, God did his saving work of regeneration in them through his word. So let your discipling relationships be Bible-centered discussions. Let your personal evangelism be Bible-centered discussions. And if you're wondering if you have been genuinely reborn, Find an older woman in this room and ask if she would read the Bible with you. If that feels too intimidating, though, just find me afterward and we can talk about options. But regeneration happens through the word of God, so we need to be in his word. God regenerates and the converted respond. So if you have a Bible with you or you have the Bible app on your phone, let's turn now to John 3. We're going to read verses 3 through 8. And while you're getting there, we'll be reading the words of Jesus while speaking with the Pharisee Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He emphasizes, he being Jesus, Jesus emphasizes the need for regeneration three times to this most religious of Jewish men. So while you're getting there, I'll start reading. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, 
You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Did you hear Jesus emphasize the need to be born again? Regeneration is necessary to enter, enter the kingdom of heaven. Regeneration is necessary for salvation. If we are not born again, we will not go to heaven. We will not be part of God's family, and we will not be saved. Regeneration is necessary. And while regeneration is necessary, in this passage we learn, regeneration is also mysterious. Nicodemus couldn't understand how this could take place. So if this is a question that you have, you're not alone. See in verse 8, where Jesus uses a metaphor comparing being born of the Spirit with the mysteriousness of the wind. Unlike God, you and I cannot exert our will over the wind to make it blow one way and not another. And we cannot see the beginning or the end of it. We just happen to experience it wherever we are. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is working in regeneration in an unseen, invisible way like the wind. Yet we sense the effects of the wind, just as we do the effects of regeneration in the lives of the converted. So the mysterious nature of regeneration speaks a lot to those of us who can't put a finger on the day or hour that the Lord saved us. Even the most observant in this room might be confused to discover, I don't know when this happened. You may not or you will not have seen the Holy Spirit coming as in Acts 2 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit visibly came from heaven. And you cannot see the Holy Spirit give you a new heart, a new spirit being put within you, removing the heart of stone from your flesh and giving you a heart of flesh, as Ezekiel 36, 27 foretold. Yet, the effects of regeneration will become clear, just like the wind. Matt Smethurst, one of our supported workers, compared this to learning your colors as a child. You may not know the day or the hour that you learned and believed that the color blue is blue. But at some point, you did come to believe that the color blue is blue, and it has stayed with you to this day. You did believe at one time or another, and it has stayed with you to this day. So you may not know the day or hour of your regeneration, yet you can see its effects, that it has stayed with you to this day. What a wonderful thing to be thankful for and grateful that Jesus addressed this in his own words. In context, Jesus does not seem to be teaching water baptism as a means of regeneration here either. Some denominations teach that regeneration happens through baptism from verse 5 in this passage. But regeneration is God's work, and he is as free as the wind to regenerate as he sees fit. If our baptism was the reason for God's regenerating us, that would not be so. We do not regenerate or lay hold of regeneration through baptism. God alone regenerates. It is his work and not ours. And what this looks like will come through more in our second point this morning, the doctrine of conversion. So we're now going to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which Holly read for us this morning. So you'll definitely want to open your Bibles to that passage because we'll spend a little bit of time there. Okay, so in these verses, Paul lays out logically what regeneration is and what it is not. We can see God's work of salvation individually and corporately. This passage structure even divides nicely to help us see the work of God in regeneration and conversion. We love when a passage does that for us. So as we look at it, it will serve as a hinge between these two salvation concepts of regeneration and conversion. In verses 1 through 3, we'll see what we're saved from. In verses 4 through 9, what we're saved by. In verse 10, what we're saved for. Verse 10 will come when we talk about conversion. Saved from, saved by, saved for. Verses 1 through 3 is where we're going to start. So, saved from what? Are you saved? I remember the first time someone asked me this question. I was in third grade playing on the playground, and my friend looked at me and just said, are you saved? And I, in my nine-year-old mind, was like, 
saved from what? We're, aren't we just playing on the playground? I feel pretty safe. We're at school. But spiritually speaking, I was not truly safe that day or any other day until the day the Lord saved me. But the straightforward question of a nine-year-old still bears repeating, are you saved? Saved from what? Did Jesus come to save us from low self-esteem or from purposeless lives or unhappiness? Verse 1 through 3 gives a thorough answer. Let's look at that now. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Why were we like this? Why are all people like this apart from Christ? God's words to Adam in Genesis 2 explain why people are the way Paul describes them in these verses. By nature, children of wrath. Just after, after God created the heavens and the earth and he created everything in it, he created man. And we get to read this dire warning in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The penalty for disobedience was clearly spelled out for Adam right there. Death. Our first parents disobeyed God's command. And on that day, the nature of all people fundamentally changed. Theologians call this original sin. Just as, and just as God warned Adam, the judgment for sin is death. 1 Corinthians 15.22 begins... For as in Adam all die, as in all of us are under judgment, dead in our trespasses and sins, from the imputation of that original sin back in Genesis 2 and 3. Children of wrath by nature, like the rest of mankind. There's true equality in this. We begin the days of our physical lives in spiritual death. Yet we are not passive innocents in this. We actively walk around in dead works, just like our passage shows us, following the world around us rather than the word of God, following the enemy in disobedience rather than following God in holiness, living in fleshly passions and serving our own desires in mind and body rather than loving God and serving him only. Our nature apart from Christ is seen here most gruesomely, dead men walking around in the ways that lead to death. This renders us utterly helpless to save ourselves. A popular theme in current women's fiction, if we've got any readers here, is the heroine who saves herself. But this passage in Ephesians unmasks this theme as a deluded dream. Who can save themselves? How could anyone do that? The dead cannot make themselves alive. It is not possible. There is no reforming a dead person. There is no moral improving of a dead person. There is nothing about a dead person that doesn't carry the stench of death. As Isaiah 65 puts it, our most righteous deeds are as filthy menstrual rags. Even our best efforts stink of death. Can a dead person love and worship God? It is not possible. Humanity's condition makes regeneration necessary. We must be born again to be saved from judgment, sin, and death. We must be born again to be saved from the world, the flesh, and the devil. How can a child of wrath be saved from God's wrath? How can a child of wrath become a true child of God? Who has the power to save you from God? In verses 4 through 9, we'll get to see what we're saved by. So look down at verse 4. But, the great contrast transition word in scripture, but, shows that regeneration happens not as a result of us or not because of us, but in spite of us. As with another but God in scripture in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to the parallels here in Ephesians 2 and take note of when God loved us with his great love in verses 4 through 9. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may generates us. So when did God love us with his great love? After he regenerates us? No, it is not after, but before. That's a wonderful thing to think about. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, who knows all of our deepest, darkest, most contemptible secret sins, who is acquainted with all our worst ways, who hears all our unwholesome talking, who knows our hidden thoughts and the shameful attitudes of our hearts, this God loves us with great love. This God loves us with great love. Tell me that doesn't make you want to weep with thankfulness. Does anyone else love like this? Do you also feel the weight of the wealth of God's mercy towards sinners? In Christ, in mercy, God does not give us what we deserve, his wrath. But God poured out his wrath for us on his son, Jesus Christ. The blameless, unblemished, beloved son in his gruesome death on a cross became a curse for us, breaking the curse of the fall. The one in whom there is no darkness descended into the darkness of death that with Christ we might be raised with him to eternal life. God the Holy Spirit is at work in this way. In Romans 8:11, we read, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The work of the Spirit in regeneration is to impart new life to us by uniting us to Christ. This is a picture of our union with Christ through regeneration, that God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. God regenerates because of love. And the next phrase will tell us how. By grace you have been saved. So what are we saved by? Let me hear you say it. Grace. What are we not saved by? Works. But also, and perhaps more surprisingly, faith. We are not saved by faith, but by grace. We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. This may seem like a subtle distinction because aren't we simply dealing with prepositions here? But it makes a big, big difference in our theology. God's grace alone saves us from God's wrath. Grace is not a payment for a life well lived, for this is not your own doing. Grace is not a wage owed to us because of our works, for it is not a result of works. Grace is not a human right to demand because what we are rightly owed for sin is not grace, but wrath. It's death. Grace is, to be, is a gift to be received undeservedly and unmerited without any help along the way from us. I am one of those people who likes to help others give me gifts that I will want or need for any given holiday or birthday. I type a helpful email with hyperlinks included, and I may have one in my drafts folder just waiting to go out for Black Friday. <laughs> but the reality of that is that I can then take partial credit for receiving a gift that I want or need, even if I didn't buy it. But this gift of grace is not like that. This gift of grace is not like that. We may take no credit for receiving such a gift from God that no one may boast. Not only this, but the sinner will never choose grace apart from God's saving work of regeneration. The sinner will never choose grace apart from God's saving work of regeneration. 
This gift of grace is something I do not know I want or need apart from God regenerating me. Have you ever had the unfortunate experience of someone taking credit for your work? Has that ever happened to you? It's awful. We hate it. But what do our words give away about who we really believe is working in salvation? Do you say, the Lord saved me, emphasizing his work of regeneration in your life? Or do you say, I asked Jesus into my heart? In reality, thinking about what we've been talking about, the Lord takes our heart and transforms it without our invitation. Asking Jesus into our heart is not the language of the Bible or of salvation by grace through faith. So do we take credit for our salvation in some way, or do we take credit for the Lord using us to lead others to him? Regeneration depends on God. So let's give proper praise and honor and glory where proper praise and honor and glory are due. We can do this by using our words well when we talk about salvation. The Lord saved me is a great way to attribute to God what only God can do. Saved to the glory of God alone. Regeneration depends on God. So when it comes to personal evangelism or making disciples or raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, what must we do? Pray. We must pray earnestly for him to save, to cause them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. I feel more excited to pray for this. I feel more burdened to pray for this from studying this theology. I hope you do too. Our daughter Amelia's name means the work of the Lord. So every night when I'm praying for her before bed, we pray that the Lord would do his saving work in her life and that she would one day do his work in the world. Who are the people in your life that you can be praying prayers like this for? We must pray to the Lord who raises the dead that he would bring life where there currently is none. God regenerates and the converted respond. So going back to Ephesians 2, what gift of grace is Paul writing about? Anyone know? Elsewhere in Romans 6, Paul wrote that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of grace is salvation from God's wrath through faith in Jesus' death for our sins in our place. The gift of grace is being made alive, being regenerated, being born again to a living hope through Christ Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's from 1 Peter 1, in case anyone's wondering why I keep saying that. How does this doctrine of regeneration relieve you of the personal burden of winning others to Christ? This is not our work, but God's. This is freeing that we cannot be responsible for how someone responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet as stewards of God's grace, what is our role in sharing the gospel and personal evangelism. We're to be ambassadors for Christ who follow him as disciples who make disciples, not simply converts. Our role is to share the good news through which others can be saved and ask them to respond to the gospel message. If you're listening this morning, have you received the gift of grace that is not of your own doing? How can you receive this gift of grace that leads us to our second point, the converted respond. So what is conversion? The word conversion simply means turning. I love that. It's so simple, turning. Um, we talk about the spiritual turning from sin as repentance and the spiritual turning to Christ we call faith. So Hebrews 6.1 describes conversion as the elementary doctrine of Christ, a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God. Doesn't this sound like Ephesians 2? Repentance and faith are the visible fruit of an invisible heart. Functionally, both repentance and faith happen at the same time, like two sides of a coin called conversion. From God's side, we are united to Christ in the new birth, and from our side, we experience this union by faith in Jesus. So it is through regeneration that people become active in moving toward God in conversion. 
I hope that makes sense. We can talk about that more. So this isn't so much a chronological distinction as a logical one. Scripture never teases apart the regeneration and conversion of God's people. It's a relationship of effect and cause. So as with the conversion and baptism of Lydia in Acts 16, this is a great place to look if you're confused about this, the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. So too with any who would repent and believe the gospel. So faith is the way we experience being born of God. Being born of God always brings faith with it. The life given in the new birth is the life of faith. The two are never separate. So what is our role then in conversion? Mark 1.15, in Mark 1.15, Jesus called for people to repent and believe in the gospel. So let's look at this pattern of conversion in faith and repentance, starting with faith. In the Bible, faith includes three components, knowledge, assent, and trust. In Romans 10.14, Paul asks the rhetorical question, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? We must have knowledge to believe. We must have knowledge to be saved. The content of our faith is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word of God. There can be no faith where knowledge is not present about who Jesus is, his death and resurrection, his return. Faith requires knowledge, but we can know the truth and still rebel against it. We can still not like it. So fun fact, a grande Starbucks peppermint mocha has more carbs than a bowl of pasta including 13 teaspoons of sugar. Okay, now that you know, will that keep you from drinking one this holiday season? We can still rebel against and dislike what we know, right? This is something we experience regularly. That was my best example I could think of that. But faith also requires assent. Saving faith differs from spiritual appreciation for Jesus as a teacher, which is accurate, or even recognizing Jesus is God, which is true. So when Nicodemus came to see Jesus in John 3, like we were reading, he recognized that Jesus had come from God. So he agreed that there were things that Jesus was doing that affirmed what was true about him. But he did not yet have saving faith in him. Saving faith is different from mere agreement with what's true about God, for James 2.19 tells us, even the demons believe and shudder. So what differentiates faith from false belief is trust, the third component of faith. So Christian faith is the wholehearted, whoops, I just did something wrong, sorry. I'm going to have to scroll to get back to my place. Please forgive me. Oh, there it is. Okay. What differentiates faith from false belief is trust, the third component of faith. Okay. So Christian faith is the wholehearted trust that God will keep his promises in the gospel. The language of trust we find all over the gospels if we read carefully. Um, when John writes, to all who received him, in John 1.12, he compares saving faith to how you would receive a guest into your home. The language of trust is found in the famous John 3.16, when whoever believes in him shall not perish. When we use whoever believes in him rather than simply whoever believes him, that's showing that saving faith is like putting your trust into a person, into Jesus. <clears throat> And the language of trust is used when Jesus says, come to me in various ways to rely on him for rest, living water, approval, acceptance, showing that saving faith includes dependence on Jesus. This language of trust is all over the Gospels. So all of these examples show us faith requires trust. As an imperfect illustration of this, earlier this week, one of my loved ones went through life-saving organ transplant surgery earlier this week. And when we think about what he went through in this process, he, one, knew he needed a new lung to live. He, two, agreed with his doctors that he needed a new lung to live. 
but that alone was not enough to save his life. When the doctors called with a donor, he showed up to the hospital, went to sleep, and woke up three days later with a new lung, having trusted the doctors with his very life. I didn't know this before, but when you have a lung transplant, and I assume any other transplant, it requires that you take medication every day for the rest of your life without fail to prevent your body from rejecting the donor lung. He must live his life forever in view of his lung transplant. So total reliance on the doctors to perform the surgery, and then total reliance on medication forever. This reminds me of saving faith. God has given us a new heart in regeneration. He performed this life-giving surgery with masterful hands while we were passive recipients of his grace. We may as well have been sleeping. Our response is faith in him that relies on God and trusts God and gives ourselves over daily to God as an informed act of the will for life. Total reliance on God to give us a new heart and then total reliance on Christ forever through faith. As in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Saving faith requires knowledge, assent, and trust. So that we're saved by grace, like we talked about earlier, and not by faith, protects us. What does that protect us from? From anxiety and insecurity that perhaps we weren't sincere enough in our faith to be truly saved. The culture of rededication among Christians illustrates what happens when our theology isn't clear on this. It's not the strength of your faith, but the strength of the Savior who saves. The object of our faith, Jesus, saves us, not the work of faith on our part. So if you're listening and wondering, did I truly believe? Every day, we think and do things that call into question our profession of faith. Sin clouds my view. So this is a reasonable question, but a better question is, who did you believe in? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith in the Savior, we are saved, not through our sincerity or intensity of emotions or repeating the right words in a prayer of confession or through baptism. 2 Corinthians 13.5 instructs us to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Excuse me. <clears throat> Paul doesn't ask whether we were sincere in our past decision to trust Christ. He doesn't say, examine yourselves to see how sincere you were. I'm so glad he doesn't say that. He asks us to think about today and looking at life today. Is saving faith at work in you through ongoing faith and repentance, which we'll get to in a minute. To paraphrase John Piper, I know I'm alive because I'm breathing, not because I have a birth certificate. Isn't that good to think about? We know we're alive because we're breathing, not because we have a birth certificate. So saving faith clings to Christ and does not let go. But better still <clears throat> are the words that we sing, and he will hold me fast. Do you all like that song? I love this song. <clears throat> but think about these words. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. It's beautiful. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. What beautiful words to sing to one another of the faith that saves. Christ holds us fast through faith in him. So one quick note on faith as it relates to our local church context, a faith that identifies with Jesus' death and resurrection cannot be separated from a faith that identifies with Jesus' people. True faith unites with a local church even as it's united to God and Christ. So we see this pattern in Acts 2, 38 through 41. We also see it elsewhere in scripture, but this one is really clear. And Peter said to them, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added into what? Into the local church at Jerusalem. So those saved through faith joined local churches, (coughs) excuse me, who offer assurance through baptism and membership. Just as Jesus originally set things up in Matthew 16 and 18. So that book Emily gave away earlier on conversion is so good for thinking about how the local church and conversion go together. Highly recommend. It's so good. I'm going to drink some tea for a second because my voice is going out. Pause. Okay. Oh, man. Okay. So as we think about conversion, have you all noticed that it's hard for me to talk about faith and not also mention repentance? That's for a good reason. Faith and repentance happen together. Regeneration enables repentance and faith to follow, but we experience it simultaneously. Does anyone have a tissue? That might help me. If not, that's okay. I'm so sorry. (coughs) We have the... That's okay. Thank you. I don't know how to turn this off, so maybe Jennifer can... I think we're good. (laughs) We've got upper respiratory things at my house, and I've held out for two weeks until this morning. So by God's grace, we'll get through with his help. Thank you all for your patience. So the converted respond in both repentance and faith. Dang. Okay, I often think about Several friends who I met over a summer in India who said they would like to follow Jesus, but not as their only God. So what was wrong with that? What was amiss in their understanding? One of these friends, after reading the story of the sinful woman forgiven in Luke 7, responded, Jesus has the power to save a woman dying on the inside. What a profound observation from someone who had never read the Bible before. She recognized Jesus' power to save, that he is God, yet she did not follow the example of the sinful woman to whom Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. For my friend to follow Jesus as her only God, she would be forfeiting her national and personal identity, her community, her former way of worship, and likely even her own family. We would all like to have Jesus insofar as he costs us nothing. This call to faith in Jesus is costly because Jesus bids us come and die, that we may live with him. There is something we are turning away from in turning to Christ in faith. In Hinduism, my friends worship many gods, celebrating festivals, offering sacrifices of food and incense and drinks to idols. (coughs) Excuse me. But in America, we may not worship idols in precisely the same visible way. Although, as an aside, there are over 3,000 Hindus living just north of us in Bentonville. Yet we do worship false gods, but it looks like ordinary American life. Money and greed, power and personal autonomy, sex and personal fulfillment, lovers of self and not lovers of God. My friends in India were sadly not converted during my summer there, but I remember them and I pray for them that they would follow the example of the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, Paul commends the Thessalonians for how they have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, 
Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul's description of their saving faith gives us a beautiful picture of conversion in real life, turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. The Thessalonians turned to God in faith, but they also turned from idols in repentance. So this is what I pray still for my Indian friends, but also for my American friends and family here, that they will turn to God from idols, no matter the cost. This is leading us to think more about the other side of our coin of conversion, repentance. Repentance means simply to turn away and turn toward. It occurs in the heart and involves the whole person in turning from sin. Like faith, it involves understanding that sin is wrong. It's produced from a godly grief that agrees with God that sin is wrong. And it requires the forsaking or renouncing of sin to live for Christ instead. So if you have Ephesians 2 still open, or if you don't, you might want to flip back there. So we're going to look at it one more quick time. Okay, verses 1 through 2, and then we're going to jump to verse 10. We're looking at the bookends of this passage. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. If you remember, this is how we started, before God made us alive. Then looking at verse 10, Paul gives us the reason for our salvation. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Do you notice that this passage begins and ends with walking? We once walked in trespasses and sins, but having been made alive, we should walk in good works. This is a word picture of repentance in action, turning from dead works and walking in good works. In Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven, he instructs his disciples to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So these good works that we should walk in are what we're saved for. We're saved for the glory of God, saved for good works. In regeneration, we are clean and we are new. And repentance looks like living in view of this new nature. This is um, when we need to think about with repentance and with regeneration, what is past is cleansed and renewed for what is future. So if in regeneration we're washed and we're renewed, we respond by bearing fruit and keeping with this repentance. You may wonder what this fruit will look like. 1 John is a great place to turn for this question. The book of 1 John was written so that whoever believes in the Son and abides in him may know they have eternal life. These are typed on your handout on your last page, by the way. 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John 3.9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And 5.18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. (coughs) Excuse me. And the evil one does not touch him. This repentance does not look flawless, this side of eternity. But it looks alive. This repentance does not look flawless this side of eternity, but it looks alive and it does not defect. So as we're winding down here, 
for all the moms and grandmothers in this room, and also for those who serve in our children's ministry, how do you speak about repentance to children when they disobey? It does not take long to be around children before they disobey. So how do you speak about repentance to them? Do you focus on behavioral change and leave Jesus out of it? How can we help our children understand their need for the Savior and not just to change their behavior? Are you teaching regeneration as God's work or moral reform as their work to please God? What is the risk of teaching moral change without making mention of their need for salvation? The problem is that we may raise really moral people who see Jesus as unnecessary for life. If all those questions I pose feel overwhelming or new to you in thinking about discipline and obedience, it'd be great to get together with another mom or several who are seeking to raise their children to know they need a savior, to pray together, to encourage one another, to talk through scenarios, because things come up all the time where we don't often have a ready word. So it's good to share those words with one another. Um, It may also be highly worthwhile to find a veteran mom who has done this. Just pepper her with questions of what does this look like? How do we raise our children to know they need a savior? How do I connect discipline and obedience to Jesus? And also in the room, be the veteran mom. We need you. Please make yourself available, older moms. We want to learn from you. I recently asked my son, do you believe in Jesus? And he responded, I don't. And when I asked what he meant by that, he said, because I don't obey him. As simple as this exchange was, it was so sobering as a mom. And I'm wondering, how would you respond to him having sat through this whole talk on regeneration and conversion with what we just learned? These are daily conversations in my house. I confess that as I've been studying this theology, that I can see more clearly how I've been teaching Jesus as the example of good behavior, which is true. But I pray that God will help me get better at teaching my kids of their need for the Savior. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I pray this is the case for my son and for all our loved ones, and for any of you listening who have not yet been made alive with Christ. Regeneration is wholly God's work, and conversion is the holy result. God regenerates, and the converted respond. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you praise that you do not delay your promise, as some understand delay. But you, Lord, are patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Lord, we pray that you would help for each one of us in this room to to be assured in our faith in you, to uh, be assured in ways that align with your word. We pray that you help for each one of us to be in the faith and truth. We pray for generation regeneration to come to any who have not yet been made alive with Christ. We pray for our loved ones who do not know you. May you draw them to yourself in saving faith. And please help us to think about how we can better apply these things in our own lives and ministries. We ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.